All right, everybody, welcome to the Eternal Leadership Podcast. And if you've been listening for any period of time, you have you have heard my story uh, and the stories of so many other people. And we have gone through crucibles, and there is so much adversity in our life, things that we need to overcome. I got to tell you, there's oftentimes going through the adversity, going through that that season, through that storm, doesn't make sense. Uh, and I just take comfort that, you know, God says, hey, I'm with you. Don't be afraid. But sometimes it's hard not be afraid when everything around you is actually inducing fear. Uh, and, and so I got introduced to uh, Dr. James Kelly. Uh, James, welcome to the podcast. No, John, thank you so much for having me on. Well, I'm excited to have you on because you, you wrote a book, man, in the title just immediately. I'm like, I got to read this one. It's called The Crucible's Gift, Five Lessons from Authentic Leaders Who Thrive in Adversity. And uh, man, talk about thriving in adversity for a lot of people. That is just a complete oxymoron. So we're going to be ta- jumping into just a great conversation about how do we thrive in adversity. So before we do that, though, uh, James, I'd love for you to just, uh, you're living in Dubai, where, and I've been there <laughs> when I was back in the Navy in Abu Dhabi and Fajira and Qatar and Saudi. As you can tell, I was, <laughs> I was in the first Gulf War, but uh, share a little bit about just your kind of your bio and uh, your background. Sure. Sure. Well, good news. It's still really hot. So that hasn't changed. <laughs> it was um, hot. It was hot in the morning. I remember one morning yeah, I wake hot. up and it was 106. I'm like, man, yeah. we used to joke. No wonder God, you know, this is like where, you, you know, God put Eden. You know, if you look at the Tigris yeah. and Euphrates, because he knew that if you put everybody in this part of the world, they'd, they'd leave and populate the rest of the world. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what we used it, to joke when we were over there. It is, it is that hot, too. Yes. It's no joke. Uh, well, again, thanks for having me on the show. I'm super excited about this conversation. And, and wherever the conversation goes, man, I'm happy to go on that journey with you. So uh, as you noted, I'm a, I'm a professor over here at, a, at the university. Uh, what is it? Jeez, UAEU. I always get it wrong. United Arab Emirates University. I've been here just over two years, going into my third year. And we'll probably be here um, one more year, two max, for sure. My oldest will be... 12. We'd like to come back for him to start high school for sure. And, you know, my day job is a professor. I teach marketing, ironically. And my night job is uh, really talking to people about the book, you know, doing some facilitations, trying to educate people about why embracing your adversity is just an essential part of life. Uh, prior to that, I was in Philadelphia. Prior to that, I was in Australia. Uh, I spent time and grew up in the Pacific Northwest. I lived in Japan for a year as well. So similar to you, a little bit, except it wasn't in the military. Uh, I've been just about all over the world. And for me, that's one of my greatest joys besides my wife and kids. Man, uh, that's, that's quite a journey, man. And, and what brought you to Dubai? Just curious. So, you know, I, I had a failure and I didn't get tenure at my last job. And in academia, for those who don't know academia, tenure is essentially the golden chalice. And when you get it, you're almost unfireable and you have a job for life. I don't totally believe in that system. I think there's some fundamental flaws in that from a quality perspective, but I didn't get it. And for various reasons, um, I was distracted. I was pursuing other things like my podcast and whatnot. And so in that failure, I had to make some choices about where we we're going to go. And a really good friend of mine was teaching at the university and he conned me into coming out and he's like, <laughs> just, he's like, just come do it. It's a good experience. And, um, at the same time, you know, I, I, 
I found that my son was given opinions about other cultures and religions that I didn't believe to be true. And I thought it was really important that my family learned about other religions and other cultures on their own, form their own opinions by their own experiences and not let someone else who's never been there or dealt with anyone from that culture pass on their own beliefs to my family. And so that was a secondary reason to come out is to give them an experience to really understand. I mean, my, my kids go to school with the most diverse set. I mean, they're, they're Emiratis, which is the local culture. There are Syrians, Jordanians, uh, British, Irish, South Africans, Koreans in their school that they, they go to school with. And so it's a UN. And I think that in a world we live in today, it's a very valuable skill to understand other cultures from around the world. Man, isn't that true? We get so isolated. Uh, I just got back from a trip to uh, Norway, um, where my family lives, and all my relatives over there, they all of them are fluent in a minimum of three or four languages. My yes. One of my cousins is fluent in seven languages. Um, sings awesome sings in the opera, plays concert piano, was the Norwegian chess master, and he runs a huge <laughs> global business, and I'm like, Wow, I feel yeah. <laughs> you know what we do? We watch TV and we all understand one language, and, and we do. In, in you know, in this global world, getting we're definitely getting a little more, uh, especially Americans, a little ethnocentric. But um, I digress. I, I we definitely I would encourage everybody listening to get out and explore this world that we live in. And I love what you're doing. The gift you're giving with your kids. We've done that with our boys and traveled overseas and have them you know interact uh, with different cultures from third world through first world. And, uh, well, and you know what's the most amazing thing about it, John, is when you strip away religion and color of skin and language, we are way more similar than different. The difference is just easy to pick out. The similarity is what's comforting. You know, I couldn't agree more, and I really believe traveling the world, at the end of the day, I think it, people – not just in general, but except for a few exceptions, you know what? They care about each other. They want to have healthy relationships. They want to do meaningful work. Mm. And you know what? They're good people. And if you, yeah. even if I disagree with maybe some of your uh, opinions, your stances on certain issues, maybe even some of your values, what I have found with even people that uh, I disagree uh, extremely on certain issues, I have always been able to find a way to connect and have a yeah. meaningful conversation about something that develops a relationship. And you know what? I'm always trying to seek to understand why they think that way. What, in, what is it about their life, their experiences that maybe I just can't even relate to that has formed that opinion? So I don't ever want to judge awesome. somebody's, you know, where they're coming from. Um, but I think, you know what, though, also, if you do want to make a difference in a cause or with a certain people, how they think, if that's really important, I, I don't think you have the permission to influence them, to lead them um, until you've first connected and, and served them first. Well, and I think what's really important about that and, and the thing that I talk about in the book in particular chapters, once we start looking through the other person's lenses. Mm hmm. It makes life so much easier to come to a compromise and collaborate. But until that point, you're staking your own opinions in the ground and you're creating angst and conflict that's unnecessary. Well, yeah. And let's think about this, too, for everybody out there 
you're working with people and you have people, I'll guarantee you right now in your sphere of influence, they're difficult, they're challenging, you don't like the way they do things in certain situations. And every single person has been through a crucible and it has colored, it has created the filters and their lenses in which they mm -hmm. see the world and react to situations. And it could be uh, from another country, it could be extreme poverty, hunger, uh, it could be abuse, physical, sexual abuse. It could be neglect. I mean, there's so many things. And guess what? We always try to put on that smile and that good face. And, and, and here's what I always tell people is there's one more thing about that other person that I don't know and I might never know. And I need to, and I need to understand that when I'm having a conversation or trying to work with them mm. in a capacity. And that is so important. And you know what? That just frees us up to, awesome. instead of gossip about people or condemn or complain, realize that that behavior is actually coming from somewhere. And maybe it's an opportunity mm -hmm. for you to actually develop that friendship, that relationship that serves them just a little bit in that mm -hmm. area that's, you know, the, a crucible that they haven't walked through completely yet. Right, James? Yeah, no, I think that's 100% correct, John. I mean, at the end of the day, like, I find, you know, we all are on a journey. And, and on that journey, through our crucible moments, our adversity moments, it recreates or adds to our social construct of what we know. And the social construct is how we interact with people. It's the evaluations and judgments we make. And we can't possibly know another individual's full set of baggage, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if you're open to the possibilities of having a relationship with somebody and open, and, and, and I think this is really critical in an organization or even outside an organization, is, is listen to the person with intent. Meaning, don't spend so much time waiting to talk to them in terms of what you want to say, mm -hmm. but listen to them. Like, you know, I always make the, the, the analogy with adults, because it's the same as kids, and you have children, I've got four kids, is that even if you disagree with your child, at the end, the fundamental end of an argument, they just want to be heard. And that's the same with an adult when you work in an environment and maybe you have a supervisor that's very, very direct and overbearing. The reality is, is that in an organization, people just want to be heard. They want validation. And, and I don't mean uh, doting validation, but I just mean like, I hear you, I understand. Here's another perspective versus you're wrong. Right. And so that kind of goes from looking through the other person's lens. And it's a really simple thing to do. And it also, to your point, is there's always something we don't know about that person. There's always some sort of history. Were they abused? Were their parents alcoholics? You know, are they an alcoholic? Like we, you just don't always know the full story. No, and, and we might never. Uh, but yeah. understanding that. So, you know, here's where I'd like to start, right? You talk about, you know, let, and you interviewed 140 a uh, very diverse set of leaders, people that, in in your opinion, are living authentically, that have gone through uh, their own crucibles. And what is your definition, James, of authentic leadership? <laughs> I love that putting me in a corner. Um, <laughs> so I actually, on purpose, don't totally define it in the book. And the reason why I don't define it is that each of us needs something different in a leader. Now, that's that's the projecting on what you need from a leader. Now, if I'm to define it or even kind of categorize it from an authentic leadership perspective, 
the closest you're going to nail me down on this, John, is that I see someone as an authentic leader when they are trying to constantly improve, grow. They have a learning mindset, a growth mindset. Because in that, that means they're open to criticism. They're open to change. They're open to growth. And it's all predicated on having that learning mindset. Um, and I had another point, but my jet lag is still full, full force. So I apologize. It will come back to me in a second. <laughs> That's okay. When it's, I, I have those moments all the time, probably due to my age now, James. Your yours is you know jet lag. So, but let, let let's talk about crucibles. I, I, we've all been through them. Some more extreme than others. Uh, I'll guarantee you there's people living right now. They're like, yeah, I'm I'm in the crucible now. And I don't even know if I can stand the heat, man. I'm ready to, you know, pull the escape valve here. So, you know, these crucible moments that we have, um, you know, what is it about them? You know, first of all, you know, what is it about this topic that, that drew all of your kind of intellectual horsepower to? I think I was, I was trying to, well, two things. I think, you know, when you reflect on your life and, and geez, just hearing your brief story before we jumped on and started doing this, I, I believe you'll agree hundred percent. When you reflect back on your life and you allow yourself to look at your past adversity moments and, and determine what was right about them, that becomes the growth opportunity. And so as I started writing the book, I just was thinking about the journey I was on. I started thinking about the leaders that I interviewed and the patterns that I saw. And I just kept seeing this this whole premise of adversity equals X, whatever that X is, you know, however I I unpack that in the book. And so my intellectual horsepower went to the idea of saying that, listen, adversity is a must. Crucibles are necessary evils to make you and help you grow. And and I think it's really important, and I talk about this all the time, is that in the adversity moment, in the crucible moment, it's okay to be sad and angry and frustrated for a time. Yeah, when I I went through mine, I showed you the details of mine. There was times where, man, I was depressed. I was definitely angry. Um, Mm -hmm. I didn't understand it. I didn't see... Um, in the moment, how this was going to lead to something better, but I did chose, you know, choose for me every day to just trust that God mm-hmm. had a plan. It was that honestly, sometimes that teeny, littlest flicker, that ember of hope, that just kept mm-hmm. me moving forward. Quite frankly, well, and that's for a lot of people. I mean, that's what it is. It's it's it could be God for them. It could be a higher power or spirituality. It could be their family. You know, the important thing is they found purpose. You know, I, I often caution people and I say it's it's healthy to be miserable. I know that sounds a bit weird because if you're in the right environment and you have a purpose beyond that misery, that's where the growth comes. It may not be for 10, 12, 15 months. I mean, there are people I interviewed that it was 10 years later and they reflected back on their life and they were like, aha, aha, I get it now, right? And that was their growth moment. Um, but I, but I think it's really important that you allow yourself to kind of sit in it. You know, I was on a podcast a, a couple months back and I just thought this phrase was great and it was embrace the suck. <laughs> and what's, what's important about that also is at some point you have to transition from letting the adversity define you to you defining the adversity. And when you make that critical pivot, that's, that's the magic that that's the magic in the process of growth. 
Yeah, and one of the things you share, James, is that you know going through that crucible gives us some actually some pretty unique opportunities and this potential to increase our self awareness. What what is it about that aspect of a crucible that's so important? So, so the self awareness. These are awesome questions, by the way. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> The self-awareness wasn't for every leader I interviewed. And that was the irony of the 140, because some had it, some didn't. And, and the biggest difference that I think allowed people to have self-awareness, to embrace it, was humility. Mm. And in humility allowed them to look at what happened occurred. So I'll use myself as an example. I've had I've had my fair share of adversity. Nothing as drastic as you. So it's all a perspective, right? But you know, my dad died when I was 20 years old, and he, and he died at 49 of mm-hmm. congestive heart failure. So I was in college. I, I already wasn't the best student, and I went down a three to four year path of just drinking a lot, and I ended up getting a DUI. And I had to go to an outpatient program to get it expunged off my record. And I had an opportunity in that program to make a definitive choice. I could go and be bitter. And and when I say go, I had to go for six months, four nights a week for three hours a night. And then I had to go for six month, months once a week for three hours a night. And then I had to do a year of therapy after that. That was the outpatient program. And so I had an opportunity to choose my perspective going into that. And I chose to not be bitter and upset about having to do it. I took the other choice. I said, I'm going to be open to the opportunity. And because I was open to that, and I, I, I believe at least, I showed humility in the moment to put myself in a vulnerable situation, it allowed me to grow. And the other thing that, John, that really happens in that self-awareness and now that crucible is that it actually allows you to now connect to people differently. Because now, because you're self-aware and you've embraced your crucible, you can now interact with people with a certain level of compassion as well. Yeah, you know, it makes you more relatable. Uh, you know, For and sure. It, and, it, you know, it makes me think back. I remember when I was, you know, recovering from my accident and one of the coaches I worked with, he had me take a huge piece of paper and just draw a line through the middle of it the long way. He goes, I want you to go back as far as you can and start charting, you know, your memories, highs and lows. And he wanted me to do it from kind of a spiritual perspective. And I, as I charted these highs and lows along the time, we actually started looking at what was happening in that low and what did that set me up for in the future. I started putting these different crucible moments, these valley moments into context. And But then he asked me a really important question. He said, John, is any of these low moments here... When you think about them, are you still connect, connected to them in a way that brings back any kind of emotional pain? Or do you look at them from a place where this has been a place of learning and equipping mm. for what you're doing today? And a majority of these were <clears throat> were learning and equipping. But there was a couple that I still realized. And I, you know, as an adult, looking back, like, wow, I haven't worked through some things mm. that that happened to me back then. And I got to tell you, just looking at things in that perspective, but because at the time he asked me this, right, I was at my lowest point recovering from this accident. I'd been told uh, by one neuropsychologist, James, uh, as we're recovering, he looked over at my wife and just said, hey, just to set expectations, I don't think John will even be able to hold down a job as a Walmart greeter. You know, and I had been running a company. My wife had been home raising the kids. So 
Now, my mm. wife is looking at being a, you know, a lifetime caregiver <laughs> of me, raising the kids, and then also having to provide financially for the family. So you can imagine mm. in that moment what was happening. Um, and so, yeah. So how do we use these crucible moments, do you think, to equip us? Or, you know, I think there's almost two categories of folks, right? Somebody right now who's in that crucible. Other people that are looking back at things and really trying to figure out what that does for them, or maybe they need to look at some of the crucibles differently. So I'd love for you to start and maybe share, some, you yeah. know, our listening audience, they're around the world. Maybe they're mm-hmm. in that crucible right now. They're, they're right in the valley. Um, so what are they? Sorry. To, yeah, no, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Yes. So I think, I think, um, and I also want to say there's different levels of crucible, right? So in the book, I kind of define three of them. One I call the bizarro crucible, where you're just kind of in this space that's just totally opposite of what you know. I use the example of moving to Japan as a great example of just like landing in a country, can't speak the language, can't read the language, I don't know what I'm doing, uh, quite bizarro. And then I define a second one as full stop, which is getting laid off, going back to school, uh, just major transition points in your life. And then the last one uh, I call the avalanche crucible. And these are the mega events. This is getting bucked off a horse and, and breaking your body. This is a death. This is a divorce. And what I, what I like to say to people is that it's only as bad as you make it and it will only be as good as you let it be. Mm. And so what's important about that is that if, if you, and I go back to this again, if you let this adversity define who you are as an individual, this one moment in time, then you're, you're going to have a difficult journey. And as you know, John, you can't, you can't make people be open to the possibility of what's good in the bad. It's, it's, you can lead them there. You can talk to them about it, but, but they have to be willing to be open to the possibilities of what is good in the bad. You know, getting the DUI for me is an example. I did a bankruptcy in my late twenties is another example. And more importantly, because we talk about the crucibles always is negative. They're also positive ones. Getting married, having your first kid, second kid, third kid, fourth kid. <laughs> you know, if you're in my shoes, um, <laughs> g- getting, getting a PhD. I mean, these are all hard, difficult, positive moments. And, and we forget to reflect on those too in terms of growth. So I don't like to leave those out because we often don't talk about them because we think of it always just as a negative. Um, but I, but I, I think the big thing is just, just be open to the possibility. And I know that seems kind of maybe foo-foo or woo-woo or whichever one of those phrases you want to use. But the reality is, is that, and, and one strategy you can use to do this, by the way, is, is similar to what you did is take a piece of paper out and think about all the positives of the moment. So my dad's death, um, and you know, in 12 months later, the positive was, um, I now value my life better. I value relationships better. I, um, look forward to marriage and having my own kids. And uh, so like in that crucible moment, you know, 12, 18 months later, I was able to say, this was good because of why, right? And in that I can take that and move forward instead of saying what was wrong with this moving forward. You know, I'm lonely. I have a, I have a attachment dis, uh, or abandonment issues now, blah, blah, blah. I could take that perspective. And I'm sure there's some of that somewhere in the background for sure. 
but I, but I've chosen to look at it from a different perspective in terms of what was good with it. You had a second question there. Uh, about, yeah. Well, this leads right into it, right? So the second question is, I'm looking at these crucible moments, right? Um, How do you uh, help people kind of look at the crucible moments in a way that shapes the future that they're, you know, the present that they're in, the future that they're walking into Mm. uh, in in a better, better context? Yeah. So, and I guess I kind of alluded to it. A second ago, you know, the, the biggest thing I like to do, I'm, I'm a huge believer in looking for examples of what what's best, what's working. When were you at your best performance in a certain context? And so, you know, right now on my website, for example, you can go download a, a, a worksheet that's a companion piece for the book, talking and walking you through the idea of adversity and what to look for in it and how to use it in a positive way. And the website um, is... What's the dot com. I know that we have a special one for this show. Uh, it's uh, oh, it's the cruciblesgift.com forward slash eternal leadership. So yeah, you can go to and, that as well. And there's some great resources there. Crucible's gift forward slash eternal leadership. And your and, and Kelly is spelled K-E-L-L-E-Y. So it's D-R James yes. Kelly uh, dot com. Just uh, but I was sure savvy. Can... I was savvy. I bought the one without the second E too. <laughs> <laughs> that is savvy. I know that... <laughs> you can teach on social media marketing too. I, don't, well, I wouldn't know about that. But and so I think you know um, the exercise I like to do with people is just say, all right, I want you to think about a time you had adversity, and in that time, I want you to focus on um, what purpose it gave you after you've reflected, right? What was the purpose of it? What purpose did it give you moving forward that helped shape your relationships with your family, your friends, your colleagues as a leader? And I I want you to write that all down, right? Because if you're framing the question of what was, out of that adversity, what was your purpose moving forward? And so it's an exercise about really focusing on the past. And then we take that and we say, okay, based on these examples of excellence, and I like to do this in a group because in a group environment, what happens is that your moment of excellence and mine might overlap a little bit or might overlap a lot, but we're both sharing and building trust and building an environment that says, um, essentially, I like this idea, I like that idea, and we're just co-creating this new environment that's healthy and positive and productive. And so I take that past, and I, and I like to have people who work with their crucibles to think about what they can take from that past and, and apply it now, right, in the moment. So what would that look like now? What would that look like in two years? And what action items do you need to do 45 days from now, six months from now, to move towards that as a more consistent version of you using that adversity as your purpose moving forward? And so, you know, with that said, right, what are, you know, you, you started out talking about when I asked you what an authentic leader was, somebody who's learning, they have a growth mindset, they're open to feedback. What are, what are some of those things that people can, because I think that is really a healthy way to approach adversity, quite frankly. I think that is kind of how I'm naturally wired. And I, I saw other people mm. when I was at uh, where I, the specialty hospital I told you about for 20 months. Right, people that absolutely did not have that mindset, and I saw the dark place that they went through because of their injuries and what had happened to them. And I got to tell you, it scared me. I think it even pushed me even farther toward 
optimism and a growth mindset. Uh, for those of us that maybe are working on that, developing a growth mindset, or we're not there yet, what are some things we can do to maybe uh, develop that? So from, from a growth mindset, a really simple task is to every single day, and you can start just one day at a time, work yourself up to a few weeks, is write down every single positive win that you had, right? So if, if, if you're somebody who struggles to have high levels of interactions at work and you know you want to grow on that. You write down every time you talk to somebody, right? And if one of your fundamental cues, if it's a, if it's a successful engagement, is that they're smiling, then that's your focus. I made Susie smile today in our talk. And you start seeing the repetition of success and you see that when you take one task, being more compassionate at work, and you focus on that for two, three weeks at a time, and you write down the successful moments where you're showing compassion. What you're doing is you're building a catalog of positive events that show you can grow as a human being and you can learn a new skill set. And as you grow that new skill set, you're also developing better interpersonal skills. So you're doing vertical leadership at the same time you're doing horizontal leadership. So you're getting new skills and capabilities, how to talk to people in a personal skills. Um, you might be attain a new method, X, Y, and Z, <clears throat> to do or achieve more compassion, integrity, relationships in the workplace. But at the same time, you're doing, you know, you're doing a horizontal um, a leadership. You're doing the vertical leadership at the same time, which is more about the interpersonal or depth of knowledge that you get. I don't know if that makes sense or not. But the big thing that I'm trying to say is just pick a task, an objective, and focus solely on that, and then write it down every day when you're successfully doing it. It will remind you of the successes. That's the big thing is is recording down the wins that you have in the day. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, let me let me share a story with you. One of my friends, he's the CEO of a company. He hired a this brilliant software engineer, but he was so painfully shy and his communication skills were so bad that it was really hard to integrate his technical expertise into the team and and so the business owner really reached out to de develop a relationship with him and found out that his crucible growing up had been physical and verbal abuse and severe bullying in his mm -hmm. neighborhood. So he was, he had a, just a fear of people and a fear of getting into any kind of relationship because that just equaled pain in his head. So, uh, my friend kind of challenged him and said, I tell you what, cause you know, I think human nature is generally pretty good, not your experience, but what if on the way to work every day, cause he took the bus, what if you just say hi just hello, that's it, nothing else, to one person every day with a smile on your face and just see what happens. And for him, this was like one of the biggest mm. stretch assignments he'd ever been given. Um, <laughs> and at the end of the month, he came to his, his uh, boss and he said, man, I failed. I failed completely. I only was able to say hi to 14 people, right? Not 30, which was his goal. And he's like, well, what do you notice? He goes, every single one of them smiled and said hello back. And But guess what? He built on that started having conversations with people. Do you know mm -hmm. that today he is the department manager and he's leading the entire development team for a large software company? But it, it started with one other person mm -hmm. taking an interest in him and actually helping him turn that crucible, which was defining him, into something that helped him to relate to other people kind of that are attracted to the kind of work That's that awesome. they do that have the same experiences and were kind of stuck mm -hmm. in their shell too. So that is so awesome. Isn't that great? 
and, and what and what he's what what he's doing is what I call micro moments of meaning. Mm. And so these are these short interactions that are 30 seconds, two minutes in length, but they're always the goal of them is to always leave the other person in a positive state, a smile, a laugh. Right. But that's my goal when I talk to people in my office, because in an organization or even in life, right, when we put ourselves you know, there's a lot of research around this idea of, of interaction, healthy interaction, positive interaction. And when you create multiple positive, uh, positive interaction, it becomes a, a multiplication effect, a multiplier. And so when you embed that in an organization, like from a leadership perspective, and you practice these ideas of micro moments and meetings with the admin, with, with uh, other people in the C-suite, mid-level, the janitor, when you take time to have those 30-second conversations, those minute conversations, and you leave them smiling and, and leave them feeling heard, listened to that positivity. They'll, they'll pass that on to somebody else next. And then that person will pass on to somebody else next. And so the idea is that you start creating this culture of positive micro moments of meaning that allows the organization to lift up, be more productive, have higher ROI, better retention and all of the sort. Man, I love that. So, you know, it just people have been listening in. First of all, uh, the book, and you can get on Amazon, is The Crucible's Gift. Um, just what final thoughts do you have, James, for everybody who's been listening into our conversation? Well, geez, that's a, that's a loaded question. Uh, yes, it is. Take your time. <laughs> I think that, you know, uh, we are all on our own journey, we are all creating our own path. And at every point, there is a choice in how we look at something. What I found with the leaders that I interviewed, a majority of them, is that when they had a crucible, at some point in the future, they took time to reflect on that crucible and find all the good in it, all the great in it, and leave all the other stuff behind because it was just baggage. It was something they were holding on to. You know, I always use the example of, I, I can't tell you how many times I read stories, hear stories, watch stories of men and women who lose their legs or arms or some sort of horrific event and say that was the best event ever that happened to them. Mm -hmm. We just so had an army ranger on who lost both legs. What he, who he has become through that, it's one of the most amazing testimonies I've ever heard in my life. Uh, how he walked through that, how uh, how God nurtured him, mentored him, equipped him, opened doors to a joyful life that he feels he would never, ever, ever have if he still had his legs because of who he was before all this happened, right? Because I think and, you have to overcome to yeah. become somebody better, uh, if not different, right? To, yeah, to then be able to climb the... If you're in the valley, guess what? After this valley comes the next peak that you get to climb. And after you climb that peak, yeah. and there's not, I'm looking at a picture of a 14er here that I climbed, and it was a long, hard journey. But at the top, guess what's up there? Rocks. Yeah. Beautiful view, <laughs> but there's not a lot of lush vegetation. There's no water. There's no food up there. So it's a beautiful view from the peak, and we kind of get enamored with that. But we have to go back down through the valley to be able to get to that next peak. That's awesome. Yeah. So, yeah, I just kind of think, you know, often in life, um, dealing with your kids, for example, you know, 
typically kids look at the, the wrong side of the coin. It's our job to educate them that now there's another choice. There's another way to frame your attitude in this moment, you know? And, and so, yeah, I don't know. I just think it's a really important topic, you know, with leaders in general and in organizations that, you know, we live in a country right now. Well, you live and <clears throat> I'll be back there soon. Um, where we're being, comp- being right is more important than doing right. And, and until we transition from the culture of we must win at all cost, I, I think that that, that that is eroding, eroding a lot of organizations, especially big organizations that are super competitive. I'm not anti-capitalism by all means, I'm totally a capitalist, but, but I think I'm for healthy living, a healthy quality of life, mentally, physically, spiritually. And um, I, I feel often that we're losing that uh, from a corporate America perspective, because of being right, it's more important than doing right. Yeah, amen on that one. You know, in every organization that I've worked in, big or small, that has the that mindset, right, that the people are important, that we're going to develop our people, we're going to take care of them. Man, they outperform their competitors. I mean, actually, if you look at the evidence, yeah. that approach is the best approach for actually succeeding yeah. in today's culture, especially with the millennials coming in. You know, this is the, the, everything that we're talking about. It's important to them. They're not going to stay at your organization if some of those aspects are like they were or some yeah. of those aspects are missing. So anyway. Yeah, I totally agree. Great stuff, buddy. Well, I look forward to uh, our next conversation. And as you transition back here to the the U.S., let's definitely stay in touch. I hope everybody out there just uh, plugs into you. Yes. And, and thanks again. Uh, again, I'm totally sleep deprived, so I, I apologize for the rambling or whatever. Oh, <laughs> you did awesome. <laughs> so I appreciate it. Yeah, it's two thirty in the morning your time, isn't it? Uh, it's, no, it's ten thirty right now. Okay. But I've been up since I've been up since two thirty a.m. Oh my so, goodness! Well, you are yeah. you're you're a machine. All right, <laughs> <laughs> all right, James. Great talking with you, buddy. Thank you, John, for your time, energy, and willingness to have me on Eternal Leadership. 